good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, my name is uh, Professor Michael Cox. That's me, down here. Um, I'm in the Department of International Relations here at the London School of Economics. And uh, I'm also co-director of one of our centres here, as you know, called Ideas. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you all here this evening. It's rather difficult. It's, cold. it's a cold evening and there's a, there's a tube strike on. Uh, but you've all come through, so thanks for being here. Now, with, uh, with Wiki, we all know who Wiki is now, don't we? With Wiki ringing in our ears, uh, and not the Pedia, but the other one, um, we're hearing some wonderful stories today. They're doing the circuit about, uh, guess what, Saudi and Gulf hostility to Iran. We never knew that before. Uh, the personality limits of Sarkozy and Berlusconi, well, we never knew that before. Not to mention the wonderful characterization in one of these uh, terrific, uh, terrific revelations coming out of these telegrams, which I'm dying to read, by the way, but I'm not a politician having to defend my reputation. I love the idea of Medvedev and Putin as Robin and Batman. Uh, it's, been, it's been an exciting day, and, and Dana, a good friend of mine, long-standing, long uh, saying that all day, he's, like myself, he's been writing things on the phone to so everybody around the world, and what's your view on Wiki, and will this destroy the transatlantic relationship? Can you speak to Americans again? And will this uh, mean that Berlusconi will start telling the truth? Um, so it's, it's been a busy day for those of us who do some of the op-eds and uh, talk about uh, these things. So I think it's a good idea uh, tonight uh, here in the old theatre to uh, set our feet firmly back on the ground and maybe get away from Wiki and back to some serious diplomatic history, although maybe Wiki will contribute to that over the years. And no better person to do that tonight than uh, Dr. Dana Allen, whose main job, or daytime job here in London, is at the International Institute of Strategic Studies uh, across the road, where he edits, I think, one of the finest foreign policy journals. Dana, I'm saying that not because you're sitting there, but because you're sitting there. But he edits one of the finest foreign policy journals, Survival, one of the most respected journals, I think. And he researches on many, many things. I always think Dana has the best of both worlds. He works in a great think tank. Um, the double IWS. They always regard themselves as the serious one, I think, as opposed to Chatham House, but we'll leave that over to other people to decide. But it's a great think tank. It does marvelous work over there, it brings over terrific people. And Dana is at the center of that. And, uh, but Dana also, uh, the best of both worlds, he has time to write great books. Um, and he's written uh, voluminously over the years some terrific books on Europe, America, and perceptions of the Soviet Union in, in, from 69 to 89, I think, were the dates on that, Dana. Dana's written on the transatlantic relationship, um, and he's written also on the transatlantic relationship in regard to the Balkans. And I was just saying to him earlier on, as we were just having some coffee before we came in, um, this in a way is, a, is a, a little bit of a turn towards a new area, although he's researched this and written on this. And, uh, and one of the reasons why it's partly shifted attention, one of the reasons, not the only one, of course, is that it's a jointly authored book with uh, Stephen Simon. So Dana is here tonight representing not just himself, but also Steve Simon, who works at the Council on Foreign Relations and has written some wonderful uh, stuff on the, on, on the Middle East. Um, the book is called The Sixth Crisis, Iran, Israel, America, and the Rumors of War. And if you can't sell a book with a title like that, you can never sell a book. That's a terrific, terrific title. 
Dana, we want to find out what's in the book, so with no further ado, I wonder if we could all give him a, a good LSE welcome. Dana, look forward to what you have to say on the Middle East. Thank you very much. Well, uh, Mick, thank you very much for that uh, tremendous introduction and um, an endorsement of the title and cover of the book, at least. I mean, in this case, you can tell a book by its cover. Um, and thanks to all of you for, on a, I think, somewhat difficult night, showing at least tentative interest in, in, in my topic. Uh, I might first explain the title. We identify five central crises in America's post-World War II encounter with the Middle East, and we argue that the Obama administration now faces a sixth in Iran's progress towards a nuclear weapons capability, a nuclear weapons capability, which is a term of art in which we can return to in Q&A. And <coughs> more immediately, in the prospect of Israel launching airstrikes to stop it. And what we're suggesting is that this crisis could be a seismic event in the same league as the 1967 war, the Iranian revolution, and other such events and their lasting effects on the Middle East and on America's role there. Now this is not to say that we're able to predict with any huge confidence what those effects will be. And I might add a few words just to underline this point of humility. In 1979-80, the Iranian Revolution, which was indisputably important, was thought to be the thing that would sweep the old monarchies from the face of the earth and alter the landscape of the Middle East in a decisive and irrevocable way. Um, that didn't happen, in fact. In 1967, on the other hand, the June War, which was widely thought to be important, but perhaps not so tectonic an event, and in fact, uh, at least on my side of the ocean, or at least that from which I hail, was probably welcomed as having lanced the boil and maybe resolved some problems, led in fact to a succession of subsequent wars, spurred the decline of Egypt and, and the rise of Islamism, and almost 50 years later continues to weigh extremely heavily on uh, at least the U.S. administration's foreign policy agenda. So all that I'm saying here is that we shouldn't go overboard in our forecasting of the results of a war. Uh, but, of course, part of the theme of our book is we really don't want to find out. This is conceived as a broadly popular book, um, which is to say that it tries to explain what we call the sixth crisis in a fairly broad context, including the rise and meaning of this Iranian nuclear threat, the Obama administration's efforts to recast America's relations with the world's Muslims, the knock-on effects of this recasting and this rising threat for America's relations with Israel, and as Dorothy Parker might have put it, vice versa. Um, only a few people will get that reference, including Mick. And I guess that uh, what my co-author and I would claim about our book is the following. This stuff is sort of like the weather. Everyone talks about the Iranian nuclear problem as part of the miasma of these other things, including partisan bitterness in the United States and the way that Israel has increasingly become part of that bitterness. With, with slogans in the, in, the, in the American contest text, slogans of appeasement and a full pronunciation of Barack Hussein Obama's full name thrown in for good measure. And all of this stuff is sort of the soup that we swim in 
But ours is, as far as I know, the first book-length effort to grapple with this collection of contentious stuff analytically and dispassionately. Now, when I say dispassionately, I wouldn't want to go overboard. The truth is our book is supportive of and sympathetic to the Obama administration's efforts and premises. We are also, I think, realistic about their limits and the, their prospects of success. But we believe that although the, the policies have not been wildly successful so far, their premises are still the right ones. Now, I have a longer talk in which I lay out these premises in extended, if, if not excruciating, detail. But in the interest of time, let me just touch on three, three things. The first is that war with Iran would be a mistake. Not just bad, not just tragic, but rather a mistake in the sense of being worse than not going to war. Now, I present this as a proposition that we think has been held by most of the Obama administration um, and reiterated recently by Secretary of Gates. Our own view, uh, perhaps slightly more, is perhaps slightly more complicated, but we're, we're sympathetic, to, sympathetic to it. But a key point and a key warning I would make is that this is a view heavily influenced today by the fact that we are currently trying to extricate ourselves from two wars in the Middle East. In fact, I would go further. A military option against uh, Iranian nuclear facilities cannot be ruled out in any event. Uh, yet the purpose of U.S. policy, uh, one purpose of U.S. policy, should be to forestall the moment when America has to choose between disarming Iran or settling for a strategy of containment. And as I say, the relative weakness of America's current position really dictates this approach. The United States, as I just said, still has large numbers of troops committed to two wars. It faces the prospect, or at least the possibility, of conflict in Korea. And it remains mired in the unemployment emergency created by the financial cr crash and Great Recession. Um, European, American, and, and Russian cohesion on Iran policy is there, but it's still fragile. In the fullness of time, these debilities could be overcome. And with that change, the aversion to military action could change. And as I, I, I just suggested that Secretary Gates has reiterated the aversion to war, but there have been other rather forceful reiterations of the administration line that all options vis-a-vis -vis Iran are on the table, and which is clearly, obvious, clearly meant to include a military option. Bottom line, though, is that there remains a pretty stif stiff aversion to that option, whether exercised by the U.S. or Israel. I would add that we are using the word war to describe the consequences of an Israeli or an American um, airstrike against Iran's nuclear facilities. Now, obviously, there are scenarios, there are alternative scenarios under which Iran accepts the destruction of these facilities without it leading to further conflict as Iraq accepted it in 1981 and Syria did three years ago. We don't view these benign scenarios as very plausible, but they can't be refuted entirely. The second premise or point that I would raise um, is in the form of a question. If not war, what? The answer, in our view, is that the United States will have to build and rely on a regime of containment of the Iranian challenge whether or not it can stop Iran from developing a nuclear weapons capability. 
Now, some quarrel with the use of the word containment in this regard. They point out that the challenge is pretty different from that posed by the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But we think containment is the right word because just as in classic Cold War containment, it has to have three elements, conventional military power, a deterrent element that at least implicitly includes nuclear deterrence, and a political ideological element. I should add that when we talk about deterrence, um, there is an inherent ambiguity about whether we are talking about deterring Iran from crossing a red line and developing nuclear weapons or deterring Iran from using nuclear weapons once it has them. And, that, and part of that confusion is here is that there really is conflicting evidence about whether or not the administration believes that an Iranian nuclear capability, nuclear weapons capability can be prevented, just as there's conflicting evidence about whether the administration believes that sanctions are going to work. But just not to be too coy, and I'll, I'll return to some questions about military action later, our position is that the United States does need to be prepared to take military action in certain circumstances um, involving the Iran crossing the, the line to weaponization. Our, our description of these circumstances is necessarily a little bit mushy because it actually does depend on circumstances. The character of an Iranian regime that crossed that line would be crucial for the decision about whether military action was required. Um, but in any event, you know, I, I present this. This is, is certainly a vaguely, at least a vaguely anti-war book, but it does not, it is not a pacifist book. Let me put it that way. The third uh, premise is that in thinking about containment, there is an important element of linkage to Israel-Palestine issues. Now, this is possibly the most contentious part of the, our book. It's in a certain way difficult to support and perhaps impossible to prove and it is also something, and maybe this is something I'll be able to discuss further in, in Q&A, but it is also something I might argue about differently to a London audience than I did last week to a Washington audience, because I think starting premises are probably pretty different. Now, when I was talking to the Washington audience last week, I had in my hands um, a, a New York Times, I think it was a New York Times article, which quoted an old colleague of mine, Mark Heller, who's now... Um, a researcher at the Institute for National Security Studies at Tel Aviv University. And Mark wrote, Mark was quoted as saying, and you know, this quote, it was an extended quote, and it could have been taken somewhat out of context, but he was quoted as saying the following, let's play a mind game. Let's assume that you've resolved the conflict or that Israel has disappeared or that Israel and the United States are now enemies. Will the Sunnis and Shiites in Iraq suddenly start making love? Will the Sunni Shiites and Christians in Lebanon get together? Will it end the oppression of Christians in Egypt? Will it raise the status of women or put an end to the use of violence as a political weapon in the Muslim world? It is a total illusion. Now, what I said to that in Washington was that with all due respect to Mark, I don't personally know anyone who subscribes to the illusion that he describes, um, and which I think can fairly, fairly reasonably be depicted as a straw man. But I would counter that his charge of illusion, I would counter his charge of illusion with my own argument about delusions. It is a delusion to deny that there are things Israel can do and in fact has been doing that make America's job in the Middle East more difficult. And by job I mean the general challenge of extricating ourselves from two wars 
while maintaining maximum possible regional stability and security, but also the specific job of trying to build a coalition to contain Iran. And when one speaks of things that Israel can do to make these, those jobs more difficult, the building of settlements in occupied territory is near the top of the list. That's my Washington presentation. Um, and it's actually the only one I'm going to make. It's my London presentation as well. But I, 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 I would just add that there are, there are some sophisticated counterarguments which I, I would take seriously. The first, the first counterargument is that um, if you make an explicit direct linkage between the Iranian problem and uh, Israel-Palestine, you are adding to Iran's incentive to sabotage progress towards peace and Iran has tools to do so. My co there, there's a nice image in the book, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm able to brag about it because it was Steve Simon's image that under certain circumstances, um, in, under circumstances of, of Iranian meddling and sabotage, uh, trying, to, trying to reach a peace agreement is like trying to shingle a roof in a hurricane. And yet the very fact that it is in Tehran's interest to sabotage peace does seem like at least circumstantial evidence that it is in our interest to promote it. Second, and of course this goes directly to much of what was um, emphasized in the WikiLeaks uh, dump today or yesterday, it is often argued that Arab states have sufficient interest to want to balance Iran without regard to what happens um, on Israel-Palestine. And I think, you know, the, in fact, I mean, this is something we already knew, and, and the, the uh, WikiLeaks um, certainly underlined that. It's somewhat odd, however, to insist that Arab public opinion is important in certain instances and in irrelevant when, when inconvenient, and I don't, I don't think we can treat it as irrelevant. I mean, another way of looking at this uh, is that there are reciprocal, what, what are the reciprocal interests and what are the reciprocal obligations of allies? Um, I, I certainly think it is in Israel's interest, um, profound interest, to extricate itself from the West Bank, to have a peace settlement, and to stop building settlements, including to stop building settlements in Jerusalem. Uh, but what, what, however Israel conceives of its, of its interest in this regard, it is clearly and profoundly in America's interest. And so this, that, this is something that the United States and Israel, I think, have to make at the heart of their dialogue. So I focused a lot on the um, U.S.-Israel relationship because, and I'm looking at the clock here, because I think how that develops is going to be important to the evolution of this crisis. I mean, you can't, you can't extrapolate too much from one-tenth summer, uh, which was really the summer before last one. But it is worth asking whether the difficult Obama-Netanyahu relationship represents something of a watershed in U.S.-Israeli relations. That's a large subject, which has to do with changing demographic trends in the United States and in Israel, um, and, and also changing attitudes on the American center-left, which has traditionally been very supportive of Israel and tended to give it a benefit of the doubt. Um, a more immediate question is that whether there has developed a fundamental distrust between Washington and Jerusalem that affects the way we look, the two sides look at, look at the Iranian challenge. And I would say what we concluded, um, 
my co-author and I, based on, among other things, uh, many, many interviews in Israel, as well as Washington, is that both sides are rather opaque to one another right now and may have given each other reason for distrust. I think it is fair to say, and I, and I say this with genuine sympathy towards the Israeli point of view at, in, on this point, I think it is fair to say that Jerusalem does not trust Washington when Washington says that a nuclear Iran is unacceptable. Partly, perhaps, because there are many people in Washington and people like Steve and I who are writing that Washington may have to accept it under certain, certain circumstances. And Washington doesn't trust Israel or isn't sure that the Israeli government is committed to a two-state solution. And of course, the settlements uh, showdown was a big early defeat for President Obama. And so this, this element of trust between Washington and Jerusalem is one way that Israel-Palestine gets drawn into the question of a common policy against Iran and Iran's developments. I, I should just add that my co-author and I, being cons are considering ourselves political realists, actually do subscribe to the, to the argument, to the notion that, uh, or to the paradigm that only Nixon can go to China and maybe only Benjamin Netanyahu can, can conclude a peace, peace settlement with the Palestinians. But we, and I think the American government, don't honestly know if this Nixon intends to go to China or given coalition politics in Israel if he can. And of course, we don't know if China is there, um, given the split between Fatah and Hamas and whether a deal is really available. Let me, let me return briefly to the question of, of a military option vis-a-vis um, -vis Iran's nuclear facilities. One way of posing this is, I think I've already, uh, already suggested, is does effective containment require the US administration to be prepared to undertake military action under certain circumstances? And there are really two questions here. The first is, should US military action seriously be used to impede Iran's nuclear program even while it only consists or it mainly consists of, um, of uranium enrichment and the other is should the US be prepared to use force after Iran has acquired a capability that crosses certain red lines. On the first point using force in a preventive mode um, I think we can see that the US and Iran have, have kind of a common interest in stringing out the current process as long as they possibly can. The United States is playing out the string because it really doesn't want to go to war, at least at this point. Um, war is an inherently uncertain enterprise, and I've already pointed out all the other things that it's coping with. So stringing this out makes a lot of sense from the U.S. standpoint, and especially since Iran's program is progressing somewhat more slowly than had been thought just a year ago. There is confidence, there is also considerable confidence among administration officials that Akom, that facility that was, that was discovered last year, was Iran's secret facility, um, the one that everyone feared existed and that there isn't another one, at least at this point. And that has given people some heart, um, in, in some people in Washington heart. And there is also hope over time that, uh, as the famous pro proverb goes, the caliph may die, that something will happen in Iran that will render this Iranian threat less of an issue. 
There is also, and this really isn't in our book because it's something that's been observed more recently, but there is a growing confidence in the United States that there would be a military option in the future. Not that it would solve the problem, but that, you know, it, that, that it's not technically as difficult a, um, a proposition as people thought a, a couple of years ago. There have been, this, this involves somewhat remarkable advances in munitions that the U.S. can use against deeply buried faci uh, facilities. Uh, which seem fairly impressive. Um, this is not to say that Iran could be prevented from reconstituting and possibly reconstituting under much more, or probably reconstituting under much more dangerous circumstances than we would face now. Um, Iran, however, also seems to be stringing things out, um, in part probably because it does not want to trigger an attack, although it's not clear that it fears an attack right now. In fact, it may be overconfident in that regard. But also because the engineering as associated with their enrichment program is not going all that well. Um, sabotage, including this um, Stuxnet worm, seemed to have been uh, reasonably effective. Uh, the um, centrifuge designs are not, design is not a particularly clever one. Um, at any way, at some point, these strings which are being played out will have been played out and there will be a moment of strategic decision. Now in the interim there is the possibility that Israel will strike. Uh, they have the capacity to do this I think, although probably not the capacity to maintain a sustained coordinated campaign that the US would stage. We don't see an Israeli attack as imminent but what we do say is that Israel's incentives to a strike will vary with a number of factors. One factor is the effectiveness of sanctions and covert operations in hobbling Iran's efforts. A second will be, will be an Israeli consensus that diplomatic efforts have really, truly, conclusively, and irrevocably failed and have been exhausted. A third is a high degree of confidence that the strike would set Iran's program back by a significant degree of time. Um, and here in Israel, I think the, the views vary between three and five years. Um, and again, that raises the question of what happens after five years and whether you really um, have created a worse situation than you've ameliorated. But well, I, I, I spoke a, a while ago of having a certain sympathy for Israel's perspective, and part of that perspective is they can't think that far ahead. Um, and five years is a pretty long time frame. And I think a decision will also depend on an assessment of the effect of the strike on Israel's relationship with the United States, which is, of course, very important to Israel's long-term security. Israel would also need a, um, uh, the availability of un an uncontested flight path to the target that may exist now. I mean, the revelations out of Saudi maybe give, give you a hint about one possibility, but they would have to be pretty sure. And of course, the quality of the targeting data matters as well. And I think if you look at all these factors, you're probably going to conclude that an Israeli strike, although is not imminent, but it is a real and looming prospect for the future. And there is a wild card that's worth pointing out, which is namely that the outbreak of another outbreak of fighting with Hezbollah in Lebanon could lead to an Israeli attack on Iran. And that could happen, for example, if the rockets supplied by Iran to Hezbollah kill a large number of Israeli civilians. And at that point, I, th I can see that the Israeli government might think it might as well go after the tree and skip the branch or go after the tree at the same time they go after the branch.
so anyway, that's the that's the main part of the framework I wanted to present, and it's part of what's in the book. Um, I think I've already offered what the U.S. military calls a target-rich environment for Q&A. But uh, before we get to that, for my own conclusion, I think I have about five minutes left to me. Um, I thought it might be appropriate to touch on this overall mood of disappointed hopes regarding President Obama, because in a certain sense, the book is about the hopes raised by President Obama. And those hopes were obviously very high and possibly unrealistic. Now, at least 90% of his domestic uh, political difficulty ex is explained by America's high, what I described as an emergency unemployment rate, a problem that neo-Hooverite Republicans seem determined to compound rather than fix. There is, of course, also foreign disappointment that logically has less to do with American economic conditions. And there was, of course, always been this suspicion about Obama, that he was a man of fancy rhetoric but limited, op limited substance and experience. This was a recurring theme in the 2008 presidential campaign from both Hillary Clinton and John McCain. And it's been a, rec it's been a um, recent argument of two of his harshest critics, who happened to be my colleagues at Johns Hopkins Sice, Elliot Cohen and Fuad Ajami. Ajami wrote in the Wall Street Journal about what he described as Obama's unhealthy self-regard, which he um, felt had been happily been burst in, in a, and, and therefore prevented Obama for sh from shoving the United States to the left, as Ajami thinks he wants to do. Others have called Obama a Canute-like figure who thinks his words can direct the tides. I know that King Canute didn't really believe that, but anyway. There were high expectations raised by the Cairo speech, even, even though Obama in his introduction tried to tone these down. And there was, of course, a somewhat mystifying failure to have a plan B for what to do after demanding a settlements freeze if, if the Israeli government said no. One administration official we interviewed for the book uh, acknowledged, and I'm quoting here, we won a lot of credibility in the Arab world with our stand on the settlements, and it eroded just as quickly. The fin final chapter of our book is actually titled Obama's Words, and we spend quite a few pages placing Obama's concept of the role of rhetoric and narrative in the context of other presidents' ideas about narrative. Um, and include, we include here John F. Kennedy, Ronald Reagan, George W. Bush. Bush, by the way, if you've read some of his speeches, really does belong in that, in that company. Um, but since Kennedy's speechwriter, Ted Sorensen, died a few weeks ago, I thought I might conclude uh, with a comparison to the most important speech that Sorensen wrote and that Kennedy delivered. This was uh, Kennedy's American University commencement speech, the so-called peace speech that followed the Cuban Missile Crisis. It's best remembered for some moving rhetoric delivered in uh, JFK's Boston Irish cadence, and you remember these words, for in the final analysis, our most common link is that we inhabit this small planet. We all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future. We are all mortal. I, um, I really love that speech. But the more important paragraph in my mind was higher up, and it was much more prosaic. This was the paragraph where Kennedy insisted that his vision of coexistence with the Soviets was not the, quote, absolute infinite concept of universal peace and goodwill of which some fantasies and fanatics dream. It was rather a more practical, more attainable peace, 
based not on a sudden revolution in human nature, but on a gradual evolution in human institutions, on a series of concrete actions and effective agreements. For peace is a process, a way of solving problems. And um, we know that this is a realistic vision because uh, it came to pass. I mean, this speech was an early part of the US policy process that led to arms control negotiations and detente with the Soviet Union and, and, and ultimately to the peaceful end of the Cold War. And my reason for dwelling on Kennedy's words here is that too many of the problems described in our book are treated by too many people in almost millennial terms with expectations of a transformative solution. Hence, Netanyahu is now saying that peace will not be possible with the Palestinians until the Palestinians undergo a kind of transformative recognition of Israel as a Jewish state. American senators, after the, um, after the shellacking that the Democrats took in the, in the midterm elections, our Republican senators are now requiring a, a definitive, unambiguous answer to the Iranian nuclear challenge, which logically means military action. Um, although, as we say, we're skeptical that this would solve it. And you know, I could even bring up Mark Heller's uh, what I called a straw man, but there may be people who, who really do uh, subscribe to the view that the root of all Middle Eastern problems is in Israeli injustice to Palestinians, and if this injustice was cured, then everything else would be cured. And my continuing admiration for Obama is that despite the evident high ambition of stuff like his Cairo speech, his precise expectations were actually rather modest and realistic. And one in, in one of his more prosaic paragraphs, the president said simply, America will align our policies with those who pursue peace, and we will say in public what we say in private. And then he went on to say what some of those private things are, that Muslims must recognize that Israel will not go away, and Israel's, Israelis must recognize the need for a Palestinian state. And then he went on to, with the, the line, it is time for us to act on what everyone knows to, true, knows to be true. The, pre the, pres the current president came into office as a self-professed realist, and in the campaign, you might recall, he said he wanted to emulate the axis of realists in the first Bush administration. He, he named specifically Colin Powell, Brent Scowcroft, and James Baker. Whether this kind of sober realism can withstand the fever of the sixth crisis is a question that I'm afraid our book does not definitively answer. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll use the, the position of the chair just to start things going while you, uh, you settle down. Uh, you used that wonderful speech from uh, JFK, Kennedy, following the Cuban Missile Crisis and this issue of coexistence and linking that on to developments that followed there afterwards. Uh, arms control in the 1960s, more formalized detente in the late 60s, early 70s, the more broad opening up to the larger communist world opening up to China and the Soviet Union. And you could say that both, both sides had an interest in coming together with one or two little ups and downs, the Reagan period, at least the first period. So both, you would say, in the end, had some, some fundamental interest in coming together. I suppose that's where the problem lies, isn't it, really, in what you're talking about. What are the fundamental interests of Israel in terms of its definition of its security? 
Iran in terms of its definition of its security and other players in the region in terms of their definition of their security. I mean, couldn't you arrive, and I, I don't want to arrive at this because I'm an, I'm an optimist like you, which is one of the reasons I like Obama too, not because I like Obama, but because it's an optimist, and therefore you've got to be an optimist in politics, otherwise you know, it becomes something else. Where are the fundamental interests pushing people together at the moment, both in terms of the Israeli-Palestinian issue on land, uh, in terms of Hamas, in terms of Hezbollah, in terms of Iran and the United States, etc. You know, the key yeah. players, all the ones you mentioned, yeah. they all seem to have interest, but don't bring them together, as what happened in the Cold War in the late 60s and early 70s. I don't want to sound overly pessimistic. No, I, I understand. Let me start there, and then maybe yeah. some well, optimists in the I, audience I mean, can, uh, let me preface it by saying that um, mm. I, I cited... Um, optimistic language, but mm. I, 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 I actually think ours is a realistic, if not a pessimistic, book. Mm. I mean, mm. we think that the prospect of war is, is significant and um, has a significant possibility of being disastrous. So, um, But in answering your question, I guess I would distinguish between interest and perception, or interest and security, um, Weltanschauung, or whatever, I mean, worldview. Uh, in terms of interest, I think you can define a common interest. Uh, certainly between, you know, I, I, I made the point that I, I spoke about reciprocal, speaking of the United States and Israel, I spoke about reciprocal obligations of allies, um, although frankly I don't see why we have to get into those reciprocal obligations because the interests seem almost the same. Israel has a huge and, in my view, a glaring interest in an, in in in, um, in a two-state solution, and that interest is being progressively and I would even say hideously undermined by the um, expansion of settlements. And this is something I guess I really don't understand from the Israeli point of view. I mean, I I, mm. I actually I. I um, I actually, um, I, there was a, right before Obama's inauguration, Martin Indyk, who was a former U.S. ambassador to uh, Israel mm. and uh, a member of the Clinton administration, and how, how shall I put it, he's long been seen as an advocate of a special relationship between the United States and Israel. Um, and he gave, he, he gave an interview in which he said, I think it was to an Israeli paper, in fact. He gave an interview in which he said, the settlements, Israeli settlements and Palestinian terrorism are equally damaging to the prospects for peace. And then he added, they're not morally equivalent, but they're equivalent in the effect they have on um, the prospects for peace. And I think that was, uh, coming from Martin Indyk, that was a, uh, I, uh, that, was one indicator of what I think is a kind of significant sea change in the way that the American center-left talks about these issues and thinks about, debates these issues. Mm -hmm. Now at the same time, the American right has become more extreme, mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. what the net effect of all of that is, is not clear. Um, and when I say the American right has become more extreme, you have people like Mike Huckabee and Sarah Palin who are in fact I, I, I don't know how to describe them in terms of the Republican mainstream, but they're certainly doing a lot to set the discourse, and they're, they, they come out as essentially advocates of, of Israeli settlements. Anyway, that's one example where perceptions mm -hmm. of, of interest are very different, but actual interests 
seem to me pretty congruent. The, there have been claims recently, uh, there have been off the unattributed quotes from uh, senior Obama officials. Uh, we didn't get these, by the way, but these are more recent, um, that argue that Obama has become convinced that Netanyahu is serious about peace. I don't really know how to evaluate these because I think they'd have to say that anyway. Um, but I don't, I don't rule it out entirely. I just, as I said in my, in my talk, I think the two sides are rather opaque to one another. Um, but in any event, that's the, that's the American-Israeli thing. And I, I, I you know, it, it seems to me that the best way, the U.S. can be the best ally to Israel by standing up for its concept of its interests, which are, which are not mm. opposed to Israel's in this case, um, however much they may be opposed to the policy of a certain Israeli government. Now, of course, the question, when you ask that question in relation to the United States and Iran or Israel and Iran, it's much more difficult. First of all, Israel has, has made it a matter of doctrine that no other state in the Middle East other than, that, that there can be no nuclear power in the, in the Middle East other than itself. Um, and that doctrine is, uh, I'm sure, could be much debated in this room, but is one I, I kind of understand. It's not clear that it's a sustainable vision, however. Um, in any event, its timeline is different from the U.S. timeline. I described the U.S. as trying to play out the, the string. Uh, Israel has a much more limited patience um, because it, I think it genuinely views Iran as an existential threat for reasons we can, I think we should probably discuss at length because it's, and at greater length, it's a somewhat nuanced argument. Uh, not an argument that Iran is going to launch a bolt out, bolt out of the blue attack, nuclear attack on Israel. Um, and of course I've lost my train of thought. The point being that uh, Israel's timeline is shorter. It is really doesn't want to see even a latent Iranian nuclear capability and it's going to be very hard to convince the Israelis that this is acceptable. From the American point of view on the other hand, It seems to me that there is a deal that's available with Iran. I have no great confidence that it's going to be reached, but one that would satisfy Iranian aspirations and give Iran a lot of strategic uh, power, actually, which is, um, which is a, a, either a tacit or an explicit agreement to allow Iran to become what's called a latent nuclear power, a, a near-threshold nuclear state. Mm -hmm. Um, if some means, again, whether formal or informal, can be decided upon to enforce that red line. Um, if, on the other hand, Iran actually withdraws from the NPT, tests nuclear weapons and so forth, then the community of interest, even the hypothetical community mm -hmm. of interest, vanishes. Whether Iran, and I have no idea whether Iran is willing to see its, see its own interest in not crossing that line. Mm -hmm. Okay, I but think, uh, sorry, but that, would, that would be the answer <laughs> to your question, that Iran might see its interest in, 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 in staying as a recessed nuclear right. power. Yeah, that leaves it very much open. There's plenty of hands going up. Uh, the man over here examining the yard. Yeah, I wonder if you could just take it to the back there, please. I'll take two or three together, okay, guys? Where's the other person? Yeah, could you just give it to the woman here? Sorry, what? lady with a hand up. In the middle, yeah. Take one, two. Take those two. <coughs> yeah, please. To your right. There you go. Very good. All right. Chap at the back, and then the lady. Yeah, please. Uh, Be quick. And yeah. yeah. Uh, thanks for your presentation. I would like to 
argue against your proposition you mentioned in the initial uh, presentation. First, uh, taking a war with iron is a mistake. I do not agree. I do not agree with your proposition. First, uh, in action against iron is costly too much compared to taking action against iron because if the material the nuclear material go to terrorists sponsored by iron it could reach a major city in Europe second uh, I do not agree with your statement that the Iranian program the Iranian nuclear issue need to be linked with Israel Palestinian problem because it is totally different issue uh, Israel is the only democratic country in Middle East and it is the only reliable friend of Western states thank you okay that's pretty clear uh, where, yeah lady here yeah please thanks very much yeah, yeah, please. Um, you, you spoke a lot about uh, the relationship between um, Israel and America and how that will affect um, a, a war in Iran. But in line with um, today's or yesterday's WikiLeak, uh, WikiLeaks, um, surely the relationship between um, Israel and the Arabs and America and the Arabs has a large effect on um, a chance or a decision being taken for war against Iran. Okay. Well, let's just take, because there's three questions in there. Thanks very much. Okay, you're wrong and wrong, and uh, Israel and the Arabs, yeah. Well, I'm certainly wrong if I um, yeah. gave the impression that I believed inaction was cost-free. Um, I mean, you, you said it's costly. Uh, I would see the cost of war under circumstances I see presenting themselves now as more costly than, than trying to play the string along. Uh, I, part of this argument is based on a conviction that uh, a regime of containment is possible uh, for, and it is, uh, you know, it's not perfect, it's not inherently absolutely stable, but the, the often you hear the argument presented that uh, the Iranian regime is irrational or um, messianic, uh, apocalyptic in its view of the use of nuclear weapons. It is, uh, I, you know, the evidence for that would have to be compared to uh, views of the, Soviet, of the Soviet Union under Stalin or um, China under Mao. Uh, one of our um, one of the people we quote in the book is a, a veteran American diplomat named James Dobbins who said, look, uh, Stalin and Mao were psychopaths when they developed nuclear weapons. You can't tell me that the Iranian regime is, is, is uh, you know, less deterrable than they were. Having said that, I take your point, actually, I take your point rather seriously regarding um, the nuclear material and terrorists. Uh, and I take it seriously partly because States are not unitary actors. We already have, have seen the uh, astonishing spectacle of 
um, A.Q. Khan in Pakistan setting up a black market in nuclear technology um, with or without the knowledge of, of the Pakistani government. So I, 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 I concede that is a, a, a serious threat. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, uh, my problem with military action, other than the fact that war is, is, is costly, uh, unpredictable, and so forth, uh, is that I don't quite see how it prevents the outcome we're trying to prevent. It can buy time, and maybe your judgment is that with time we'll be in a better position. But it seems more plausible to me that mm -hmm. with time Iran will reconstitute and will reconstitute under much more dangerous uh, conditions. Linkage. Yeah. On linkage, um, well, I again, I hope I would not present linkage. There, linkage is not direct, it's indirect. I mean, it's indirect in the sense that it creates, it helps create conditions. Progress on, on the Palestinian front would help create conditions that would make America's job easier in other regards. That's, that's the limit of what I'm claiming, but I think it's, it's important. Uh, if Iran did not have, one way of putting this is if Iran didn't, in political ideological terms, if Iran did not have the Palestine issue, what would it have in the Arab world? I'm not saying it would have nothing. Obviously, it has a relationship with, um, with, with some Shia communities. Uh, it has important equities in Lebanon. Uh, it, it has the ability, uh, which has some resonance, especially in the Levant, uh, to, to, to complain about what's seen as a nuclear double standard where Israel is permitted to have nuclear weapons and, and, and other countries are not. Uh, so these things wouldn't go away. But I think taking away the Palestinian issue would be to diffuse quite a lot. Which is not to say that you can take away the Palestinian issue. I mean, it's a, it's a very hard nut to crack, so um, it, it's not a magic bullet. But talking about other Arab states does lead to this, to this question about WikiLeaks. I, I want to say something about, about the WikiLeaks thing, by the way, before, <laughs> as a preface. Um, you know, I'm not a great advocate of um, secrecy for secrecy's sake, and, I'm, and in, the, in my country there is an incredible overclassification of, of information that is really almost scandalous. But I think these leaks were hugely damaging and, and hugely wrong-headed. Um, you know, uh, diplomacy is something that um, that takes place not in secrecy but with a degree of confidentiality and it needs to do that to be effective. It's interesting how this happened, and, and I'm not sure I understand the entire story, but if I understand it correctly, um, in, it was an unintended consequence of trying to re reform um, what was seen as stovepiped intelligence to, to directly channel intelligence that led to a lack of cross-fertilization of information that might have made it possible for the 9-11 hijackers to get through. And therefore, everybody was, at a certain level, was supposed to be read everything at a certain level of classification. And this made it possible, if I understand what happened, for mm. a corporal somewhere to, mm. to download vast quantities of material that he probably should never have seen in the first place. Um, but I think it's been hugely damaging. And, it's, and, and, and you can see the potential damage in exactly the issue that, mm. uh, that I'm talking, that we wrote about and I'm talking about, because the job of forming a coalition um, to contain Iran is, 
is hampered, to put it mildly, when reports of what the king of Saudi Arabia said about Iran are immediately splayed across, not immediately, but are, are, are um, splayed across the newspapers. This, it, so it's, it's not just embarrassing, it's damaging. Um, but the question was, uh, Israel and the Arabs, um, I, I think the question was, do the Israelis and Arabs have a natural alliance or natural coalition? The Israelis um, at times clearly have believed so, and they've, um, they've, um, they've made this case. In fact, the deputy foreign minister, um, I'm trying to remember in which Arab newspaper he published a, a, a letter or an op-ed in which he made this claim that we have, you know, you know we, um, we are not enemies, or we have a common threat in Iran, uh, and he made a strong case for it, but it wasn't clear what he expected the Sunni Arab regimes to whom he was addressing this letter to do about it. Um, and he seemed to be implying that there was nothing Israel could do about it. And again, I think Israel could help this if, if there is an incipient alliance between Israel and Arab states. It would be facilitated greatly by progress on Israel-Palestine. Yeah, that's great. Come back onto the wiki again, if that's an interest, but we won't get... Yeah, the gentleman up there and then the chap in front, yeah? Thank, thank you. you. Uh, thank you very much for your comprehensive presentation. I have a small question with regard to um, the international treaties on non-proliferation, for example, not only the NPT, but in particular the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Um, maybe you could share your views with us, I would appreciate that. And my second question would be with regard to the nuclear weapon-free Middle East. Uh, what would Israel's role be? Okay, right. <laughs> uh, chap here, yeah, just uh, looking over the balcony, yeah, please. Yeah, please. Hi. Um, my question, uh, you did correctly identify that after a potential attack, Iran would reconstitute. And then you <coughs> spoke earlier about um, a logical and definitive solution. Um, I'm sorry, about what? a logical and definitive solution. Earlier he was speaking about the Republicans. Um, wouldn't you agree that given the um, mullahs in the Islamic regime view war as a divine gift, that instead of a military option, a better course of action against both the nuclear issue and the human rights issue would be um, a, a system of airtight sanctions against the regime as well as um, support for the Iranian people and opposition groups abroad, which would obviously then because without the regime, we not only have no nuclear program, but then we also have a reduction in the problems in Israel, Afghanistan, Yemen, and so on. Isn't that a more prudent solution than war, wouldn't you think? Thanks. Is that a kind of argument for regime change, yeah? That's yeah. Essentially, yeah. Yeah. I, no, I'm just trying to put it Instead of war, yeah. No, no, sure. Thank you. Dana, why don't you take those two? Well, I don't know how you get regime change instead of war. And it aggravates uh, an explicit policy of regime change um, makes it more difficult to, to reach a solution with the Iranian regime. Uh, th this has been a dilemma that mm. has bedeviled the Obama administration almost since it took office. Look, you could, and I, I hope this doesn't sound in any way cynical because it's not meant to be. Um, I mean, you could make an argument that the Green Movement, please, please, please understand the context in which I'm saying this, you could under make an argument that the Green Movement was profoundly inconvenient for the administration's diplomacy, that there was an idea that the administration was on the verge of 
um, or thought it might be able to get a deal after the elections um, or at the beginning of, of serious negotiations and couldn't. Now that's, believe me, is not an argument against the Green Movement, I w I, I, um, but I'm not sure on the basis of your question what the United States can do for the Green Movement. You suggested, at first I thought you were suggesting getting rid of the sanctions and then I understood you arguing for heightened sanctions. Um, I'm not sure that heightened sanctions, you know, sanctions tend to, um, if they're really effective, they tend to eviscerate middle classes. They tend to empower, uh, empower the, the ruling regime by giving it access to the things, or, or, or monopoly access to the things that are less available on the street. Um, so I just don't see a silver bullet in, in, in spontaneous regime change, which I think is what, what, what you're arguing for, a Western-supported spontaneous regime change. In the long run, I mean, you know, I, I would, I, I, the, the Iranian regime is, is, is a um, very unpleasant theocracy, and the sooner that it mellows or transforms or even goes away, the better but I don't see that as the basis of a strategy or even a policy. Um, I'm not sure that's an adequate answer because it's a very serious mm. question. Uh, I just haven't seen any evidence that the United States in particular can affect the outcome of political struggles in Iran except perhaps on the margins. Now, you know, this was uh, Obama, I, I, I spoke of inconvenience and I almost, I, I regret it immediately because I, I, I knew it was going to sound wrong, but the, uh, clearly the Obama administration and the president himself were in a certain sense wrong-footed mm. by what happened after the June 2009 elections mm. in Iran. Um, and I think they were taken by surprise. The president made the case initially that overt American embrace of the Green Movement might make Americans feel better but wouldn't do the Green Movement any good and might actually harm it. You know, it's impossible to prove that case, uh, although there is some evidence that the leaders of the movement and were being very careful to cling to symbols of Islamic piety and Iranian nationalism such that they wanted to inoculate themselves against the charge of being foreign tools. So that's circumstantial evidence that Obama was right to take a more careful view at the beginning. Um, as the repression became more savage, he had to, you know, he couldn't really sustain that position and he had to speak out more forcefully um, uh, in support of the demonstrators and I think he was right to do so, but even though he was right to do so, I'm not sure that it did them all that much good. Mm -hmm. On the nuclear-free Middle East, which was the other Oh, yes. Uh, Israel's role. Well, <laughs> Nuclear free Middle East. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah I don't. Uh, <laughs> I suppose there's also yeah, I'm, a I'm double gonna, standards issue. I'm well, going to so. yeah, I'm going to dance around this question by answering a different question, which is about double standards. Um, and then I might come back to the actual role of the nuclear free uh, weapon zone in the Middle East. Regarding the the charge of double standards, a couple points to make. On the one hand, you know, Israel did not, is not a member of the NPT, and that's not irrelevant. That is certainly not legally irrelevant. 
Israel did not sign the treaty, it has not violated the treaty. Uh, just as Pakistan has not violated the treaty, just as India has not violated the treaty. Uh, you know, that's um, the obligations upon Iran as a, as a signatory are, are very, very different. Now, having said that, the notion that there is a double standard obviously has considerable resonance um, and you know, uh, the basic idea of unfairness is, is a real one, which Iran obviously appeals to. Um, and furthermore, you could make the further argument that the NPT is an inherently sort of counterintuitive and, and fragile instrument precisely because it's so counterintuitive and, uh, to, to, to imagine that Know, five recognized states can be forever the monopolizers of the right to have nuclear weapons. I mean, this is all true. Uh, it's a kind of box we've gotten into based on the fact that we, while we recognize this, we also think it would be very dangerous to have lots of other countries have nuclear weapons, um, especially those who have signed the NPT. This was a huge part of the impulse that President Obama that drove President Obama to embrace the nuclear abolition movement, the, the, the global zero movement. I mean, he was the first president since Ronald Reagan to take this idea seriously. And when Ronald Reagan did it, people thought he was, a, you know, frankly, a flake. Uh, but um, but uh, Obama has embraced the Reagan vision, and in large part because of the view that the NPT as an instrument of nuclear monopoly cannot last forever. So either you have to put up or shut up in terms of uh, uh, the nuclear weapon states' uh, monopolies. You know, I mean, in settings like this, you've heard so many times the answer on a nuclear weapons-free zone, which is that um, Israel is not going to do it until it feels more secure. Um, I'm sure we can debate that. I think that is, I heard somebody quote Douglas MacArthur recently saying that a problem without, I'm not even sure this is a correct quote, but it was too good to check. A problem without a solution is not a problem, it's a fact. Um, I do <laughs> think that is a fact, that Israel's position is not changeable in the short term. Having said that, I think there are things Israel can do to make much clearer that it is ready that it, uh, that it would have a future readiness to negotiate its nuclear status along with radically transformed uh, conditions and security conditions in, in the Middle East. Mm. Okay, we've got a lot of good, um, this, the tick, yeah, just, just a second, take the chap with stripes and then the chap behind you who doesn't have stripes, and then <laughs> there you next to you. Take three together, yeah? He does actually, they go the other way. Oh, do you, I didn't, I'm sorry, yeah, I'm vertically charged on this. Uh, thanks again for your speech. Um, let's say an airstrike on Iran does take place, uh, whether it be by Israel or the United States. Um, do you see Iran responding similar to Iraq and Syria did when their facilities were bombed, or do you see it responding with a different form of retaliation, and what would that be? Okay, so one on the airstrike and Iran's response. Gentleman behind. Yes, I think um, you have uh, fairly well dismissed the uh, new attack on Iran as a mistake. You've also said that the sanctions um, is not effective. That only leaves, um, mm -hmm. you know, stretching a hand for a deal. Uh, in fact, begging, really, for a deal. Um, now, I would like to um, perhaps 
suggest here that the sanctions are beginning to, to work. Uh, over the past few days, we've seen uh, uh, a significant uh, number of MPs, for example, in the Iranian Majlis, trying to impeach the president. Um, this may take another few weeks, but if it succeeds, uh, legally they can, uh, they can impeach him and call for new elections. So um, it seems to me that, um, that sanctions are, in fact, um, if you tighten it, especially if you tighten it, uh, that they may actually be able to remove, because uh, Iran is not Syria, it's not, uh, it's not Iraq. It's, uh, you know, there are mechanisms for changing the system from within. Okay, th and then the lady just in front of you, I'll just take, yeah, take the, and then we take the three, yeah, please, thanks. Thank you. Um, I would just like to know how real do you assess the nuclear threat of Iran? Um, some scholars say that it would take about two years, but there have been technological setbacks and there are still some technological hurdles. Um, so how real is the threat and how long is two years in, say, Middle Eastern time? I mean, in two years a lot can happen. Great. Okay. Lots of questions there, Dana. Start with the airstrike. <laughs> uh, move on to Iran. No war, no sanctions, therefore what's your position? And then wh what is actually the nuclear threat, technologically? Right. We um, were in a debate on this subject as we were writing our book with a well-known, um, I guess it was a private meeting, so I'll just describe him as a well-known neoconservative from the, from the Bush administration. There's no WikiLeaks here, by the way, yeah. so you're okay. And... Uh, he posed the scenario that how do we know that Iran would even acknowledge that it was attacked? Um, wouldn't it be in its interest not to not to acknowledge it? Um, well, first of all, I don't think it would be easy. I mean, that, that that's 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 sort of an extreme scenario. Um, but it, first of all, this would be, this, this this is not like. Ozarek or um, mm. or the Syrian case because it's a much larger operation. Mm. Um, and Iran, you know, wouldn't be able to hide it if it happened, I don't think. Uh, you know, the scenarios, and we lay them out in our book, and we're not, you know, didactic about them in the sense that, uh, I mean, we have, there, there are positive benefits that could come from airstrikes. It would, um, it would, uh, make a statement in favor, a forceful statement in favor of non-proliferation. It would show that there is a penalty to pay for, um, for trying to game the international community and evade uh, NPT obligations, and these are not to be dismissed. It might, um, in the long run, add to a sense of popular dissatisfaction with the regime and although you would expect an immediate rallying around the flag you could imagine uh, a more long-term view that you know this is one more thing that the regime has done to us um, and one more one more element in the account that the Iranian that some of the Iranian people have with their regime and it could um, it could be salutary in that way it is. It is simply that the, um, you know, the on on the ledger, the the, the possibility of um, or, or the balance of deleterious consequences just seems so much larger to us at this point. Um, 
Iran could go on an embassy a day program, as my as my uh, the, the Republican Guards could go on an embassy a day program, Revolutionary Guards, I should say, as my uh, co-author uh, puts it. Um, they have potential to stir up untold trouble in Lebanon uh, with Hezbollah vis-a-vis -vis Israel, possibly in Gaza vis-a-vis -vis Hamas. Uh, there are plenty of targets um, in, among American allies in, in the Gulf. In that position, the United States would, prob would almost certainly be implicated and feel the need to re respond to, to Iran's response. And it's not very likely that the American response would be limited. Um, I think there would be a view from the Pentagon that we have to um, deprive Iran of a lot of its capabilities. And this would start to look like full-scale war. I don't have any doubt that the side that I would hope would win that war would win it. I mean, the, you know, the United States would enjoy escalation dominance, but to what end? That's that, to what end if as we're postulating, Iran would be in a position with a great motivation and a lot of international sympathy at this point um, to withdraw from the NPT and go hell for leather in, in creating not just a nuclear capability but real nuclear weapons. Now, the fact is that I can't, that, 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 that is a fear, and a, and a very plausible fear, and one that we think weighs very heavily in the balance. It's possible Iran could be prevented from reconstituting. Um, the, 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 this was one of the great surprises, of course, uh, in Iraq, which was that uh, under a regime of very tight sanctions, and uh, after military action in 1998 that, did a, that, that went a lot, after a lot of uh, very high-value targets, that Iraq was not really in a position to reconstitute its, um, its prescribed weapons programs. It is hard for us to imagine achieving that same level of, 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 um, of airtight sanctions against Iran after, after an Israeli attack. Um, but, you know, I can't... I can't Say for sure. So that's that, that's 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 the balance that we see now. Uh, th but as I as I insisted, this is not a book that says no to military action under any circumstances. In fact, it lays out circumstances where where we think military action might be needed. But it's I mean you can say it's a big cop out because it's not now. Um, Go to the third point there, though. On there. How, how close are the Iranians? This kind of constant question. Technologically, how far along? Well, anyway, only do about, we know? Yeah, well, and then come back to the other question. About, uh, I, you know, they're, they, they don't have a, a warhead that can be put on a missile. The missile developments are, are very worrying, and there was some confirmation of the North Korean connection among the WikiLeaks documents. Um, they're having problems with their centrifuges, some of which seem to be, have some of this, these problems have been introduced from the outside. Some have to do with the current design. It seems that apparently only about half of them are working at this point. Uh, so it's not a crash program. And this is something that uh, you know one very high-level administration official emphasized to us. People talk about this as though Iran has some sort of crash program and is determined to produce a nuclear weapon as soon as possible. That's not actually the state of the, 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 state of the problem. Actually, do you ever buy into or take any, take any credibility in the argument that, that these are 
this is for peaceful purposes as they themselves as the regime claims just write that um, on as well that's yeah order. no I think that's important uh, I, th I, I take seriously the argument that Iran has not decided definitely to cross the line mm -hmm. um, to, to weaponization there's lots of evidence and of course all of this hangs under the cloud of, of what was asserted with great confidence about the Iraqi program mm -hmm. so I mean there's no getting away from that but there's lots of evidence, um, including recent uh, very sharp reports from the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency uh, that they've been working on weaponization, or that these are presented as suspicions by, you know, and weaponization means design work and research work. It doesn't mean actually producing a weapon. Um, so it, 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 the, the nuclear purpose, I mean, the, the the potential weapons purpose of this program is even talked about by some Iranians with, with, with a degree of um, you know, openness and uh, as, a, as a hedging strategy, not as a, not as a determination to build nuclear weapons. Uh, so I certainly leave that possibility open, and that possibility, I believe, we believe, is one of the great hopes for eventually achieving a deal. Uh, in which Iran achieves much of what it's seeking, stopping short of weaponization, but being not that far from uh, from from a nuclear weapons capability, that would not be a very comfortable position, and it would be an extremely uncomfortable position for Israel. But I think it's one that uh, the United States should consider as a possible solution. The one about, the one about sanctions. Now, getting back to the gentleman. Look, working? I didn't. Uh, sanctions are working in, to the extent that they're causing damage. I'm not. There's no question about that. Um, I think Raf Sanjani said in the parliament, uh, you know, to his colleagues, sanctions are no joke, and he meant it. Uh, and I think the United States has been, the Obama administration has been pleasantly surprised by the amount of support and, and real bite that it's gotten from um, its European allies, in particular, but also. Also, which obviously go further than what the UN does, but also by Russian and even Chinese support for UN sanctions. But the idea that sanctions will lead to the um, to the policy outcome we're looking for is a theory. It is a theory, and you know, there's a lot of literature about sanctions with not a whole huge amount. Of, of, of success stories. I can think of two success stories off the top of my head. Maybe you can remind me of others. One was uh, South Africa and one was Libya. Those took a long time. If we're talking about a very pointed timeline in terms of ir Iranian nuclear developments, even though I've insisted it's not an emergency and a crash program, it is still the timeline for, for South Africa, which was obviously a very different issue, and Libya, which was a similar issue, uh, was 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 much longer than what we're looking at in dealing with this crisis, uh, but I did not argue against sanctions. I I, I expressed skepticism about them as the solution, but I did not argue against sanctions, and I wouldn't argue against sanctions. Among other things, the diplomacy in organizing them has helped reveal and solidify the the anti-Iran coalition. Now, if I were going to argue against sanctions, which I repeat, I'm not doing. You know, the argument against sanctions, one, which one hears, is that real game-changing engagement with Iran hasn't really been tried. 
that in order to do that, you would have to you know, stop threatening Iran militarily, um, you know, put everything on the table, stop hectoring it about its nuclear program, and lift sanctions. Uh, in fact, I just published a piece by Robert Hunter uh, in, in my, the latest issue of, I think it was the latest issue of Survival that sort of made that argument. I would not that make that argument because, uh, among other things, it's just politically totally unrealistic. It's not going to happen in the United States. And, uh, you know, if Iran was going to, Iran maybe didn't have enough evidence that America didn't threaten it, but it had as much as it's probably going to get. And I cannot, and the other thing I would report is that the Obama administration believes that it engaged in a kind of game-changing uh, in, initiative towards engagement and that the and that Tehran rebuffed it. Um, I've got a question. Uh, and yeah, please, gentleman there, and there's a chap here with a scarf on and this gentleman here with the glasses. So I'm trying to differentiate between first. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In the event that uh, Iran is on the threshold of weaponization and either Israel or the United States believes that military action is the, the least worst option. Um, I'm up here if you're, if you're looking at me. Um, do you believe that uh, either Israel or the United States would try and utilize the elements of surprise, or do you think they would seek UN Security Council um, backing to sort of give greater legality and legitimacy to any military action? And just adding on to that, if, say, the United States went down the UN Security Council resolution route, would they? Do you think they're likely? Do you think they would ask for uh, military support from the United Kingdom? Okay. Uh, um, thank you for your talk. Um, I'm wondering about yeah, like the the, uh, the issue you just raised on on like the non-military alternatives because I think you you said that the military strike is basically. Um, little helpful, uh, let's put it like that, and um, well, what then is the alternative, uh, uh, the alternative way, like how could you, uh, what incentives could you offer for Iran uh, uh, to, to, to go a peaceful way and, and maybe to, to go away from his, from his uh, enrichment program? That's probably a hard thing, but, but still, I think one worth considering uh, regarding the other options, right? Okay, thank you. and I just uh, one final question here. I have to be the gentleman glasses here. Yeah, just had a chat a long time. Sir. Thank you. Um, one of the details that emerged in the in the WikiLeaks talk this morning was that um, Israeli Defense Minister Ehud Barak had suggested to Washington that the conditions for attacking Iran would be fair uh, until the end of this year, but not beyond that. Um, do you, Do you think that would you read from that? that uh, Israel is in a less secure position to prosecute war than it was in 1967. Uh, do, you um, mean, do you mean to the end of this year, yeah. 2010? Yeah, to the end of 2010. So yeah. about another five weeks? Yeah, but I think, he, I think he said, that, I mean, this is from the WikiLeaks story, so I think he said this you know, in the first half of this year. Yeah, yeah, no. um, so, so do you think they're in a less secure position to prosecute war than they were in 67? I don't, I don't understand the, 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 the chain of logic here, because he says, well, he, he says, so Barack, who's the defense yeah, minister, you know, right, yeah, says yeah. he reckons he can do it. You know, they reckon they can go on Iran until the end of this time, year, but not beyond that. 
So there's a deadline. Yeah, I just want to the trajectory. As I read that, I mean, maybe somebody in the room can correct me because I, I didn't read the, I didn't actually read the cable, but I read the report on it, and that my understanding is what he had said was that after that period, um, collateral damage mm. would be too great, um, which presumably means that you know new facilities would be. Um, embedded in civilian populations and so forth. I mean, currently, currently, we, based on our analysis, we see the possibility of civilian casualties, you know, in the hundreds, uh, which would be, a, you know, a human tragedy to begin with, but also, you know, a big um, political problem. But I don't uh, you know, I, I, I don't know enough about what Barack was talking about in terms of, mm. uh, I mean, I can, I can imagine, as I just described it, the facilities would be more widespread and there yeah. would be greater collateral damage. But I, yeah. I don't follow the specifics of his argument very well, partly but, because I didn't see the well, whole thing. Let, sorry, do, do you think it's fair that, that they are in a, that the, the, trajectories of, the trajectories, the balance of power in the Middle East has changed sufficiently since 67, that they are, Israel, in a weaker position than they were in 67? Let me try to address that in a broader sense. Do that, then move back to the UN and the incentives to Iran question, and then we'll draw it to an end. Yeah, try and deal with that one first, Jenny. Yeah? That's it. You're on the roll. Yeah, I mean, again, the... Uh, you know, I, I interpret that report slightly differently than you do, but the question can still be asked. Is that I mean, it's an interesting question. My short answer to, answer to it is no. I think that Israel, and and this is part of some, you know my, of my friendly criticism of the Israeli government, is that it speaks as though it is in the same situation as it was in. 1967, with surrounded by a sea of declared enemies who have said no to its very existence. Well, that's not actually the situation. The situation is, in fact, that a number of, you know, there have been Arab states that have made peace with Israel. It's, a, it's not a very friendly peace, but it's a, it's, a, it's a real formal peace. And most of the rest have offered an Arab peace initiative, which, you know, may not be entirely to to Israel's liking, but represents a, a watershed in, in, in the potential for Israel to achieve normalization in the region. And that's a hugely significant diplomatic and I would say strategic factor. And if you add in the fact that um, right now, you know, what the WikiLeaks dump confirms, which, you know, there were various reports included in our book about this already, is that, um, is that the Saudi, uh, the Saudi state is most concerned now about Iran's nuclear developments and wants action against it. And there's e there was even a, you know, I don't know how seriously to take this poll because it was confined to a few cities, which, you know, is not representative. But there was a poll of some, about three Saudi Arabian cities in which I think one, 40 percent were in favor of American airstrikes. I can't remember, something like 25% even said, well, if it had to be Israel, that would be okay, too. So the general strategic and diplomatic situation, I think, is more favorable to Israel than Israel sometimes lets on. Having said that, um, 
the, the threat that Israel perceives from Iran is one that I think Israel has the right to take seriously. And what is that threat? And I think this was, I, I think somebody might have asked that and, um, or meant to ask that, but I only answered the narrow question about how long it would take for uh, nuclear developments. But, you know, a, a, another question is how seriously should we take the Israeli claim that Iran, uh, Iranian nuclear developments pose a, an existential threat? And of course, this gets us into what various Iranian leaders have meant when they said things that have been translated in various ways about wiping Israel off the map. Now, Iranians have said to me, and I understand that the president, the Iranian president, said the same thing a few days later after he was quoted repeating the Khomeini line. He said, well, what I meant is that Israel would disappear, is, is, is illegitimate, shouldn't exist, it will disappear just like the Soviet Union disappeared. In other words, it would disappear, it would be wiped off the map politically, which does not imply violent extermination. Um, and you know, that may, that may in, indeed be the idea. I mean, the, the, the two responses to that from an Israeli point of view are a country is developing a nuclear weapons capability that says you should not exist. I mean, that is a, that is a threatening enough uh, situation. And secondly, the Iranians have not been willing to be passive witnesses to historical process. They've been active in it. They've been involved in terrorist activities that had not just what they might call Zionist targets, but simply Jewish targets. I mean, what else was the, were the bombings in uh, Buenos Aires except an attack on Jewish targets? So, you know, it, it as an American who's concerned about the broader sweep of American interests and trying to look at this thing with a cold and rational eye, I believe that both the United States and in fact Israel should, to, should be able to accept the development of a normal regime of deterrence and containment, even if Iran develops nuclear weapons. But I have to say I'm not so sure how I could convince the Israelis of that, and I can understand their resistance to the idea. Um, and now, I don't think that directly answered your question, for which I didn't really have a good answer, but I tried to answer some of it. The UN? Um, well, no, okay, I think that's simple. I don't think Israel would ask for UN Security Council <laughs> approval. I think, I think the US <laughs> would ask for it only if it thought it was going to get it. But, you know, maybe a more interesting question, not, the, the qu whole question was interesting, but uh, maybe a more difficult question is what w w was the question about the UK? Um, uh, you know, the, the country that seems to be, um, if I may put it this way, the most bloody-minded about this whole situation seems to be France, which really wants to show no, um, has been concerned about the view that the United States may bend too much and may, um, may, may give in to the Iranians. Uh, and I, you know, members of the French national security community have said to me, yes, under circumstances, if it became necessary to take military action, uh, France would support that. Um, if France supported it, I imagine the UK would support it, but it would, it would depend on the circumstances. The circumstances of the Iraq war were were circumstances of where, well, let me put it this way, that the French had reason to doubt the good faith of the American plan. 
Um, Americans doubted the French good faith too. It was it was kind of tragic in that way. Um, under under better circumstances and in a situation where, you know, again the things I've been talking about. And forgive me for repeating myself. If Iran crosses the nuclear threshold, at the same time that it is using the same bellicose rhetoric about Israel, and at the same time that it is continuing to support Hezbollah and support know, direct terrorist activities against Israel, those would be circumstances in which I think the, at least the European view about military action might be very different than other circumstances. I hasten to add that I think the European view was greatly influenced, um, and I think you can see this in poll results, it was greatly influenced by the uh, crackdown on the Green Movement, which, uh, which um, provoked serious and I think genuine and, uh, and, and justifiable revulsion among many European publics. Okay, I think I, um, I incentives to Iran. Yeah, I think you dealt with that another, but okay. just, yeah. quick, just so, quick, what are the incentives to Iran? Well, I think I did deal with yeah. it. I mean, you know, it, it, one could imagine more of a game-changing uh, offer of engagement, but there is a deal that is available, I'm convinced of it. And that deal um, could lead to things that were suggested in the Iranian initiative of, of um, I think it was May 2003, uh, to the Bush administration, which talked about a grand bargain in which everything would be on the table, including support for terrorism, Israel, um, mm -hmm. and the nuclear program. And the Iranians wanted certain things from the United States in return from that. Now that was a very different government, um, and it's far from clear. It, it was also under circumstances when the, where the Iranians were afraid of the fact that uh, what looked like the effortless uh, toppling of the Saddam Hussein regime and the fact that uh, American troops were now on, on both of its borders. Um, but it was nonetheless the stuff of a potential deal. I'm politically pessimistic, but strategically it ought to be there. Okay, I think we'll draw uh, the, the thing, the evening to a close. I'm bound to come back to, to Wikipedia, where uh, Wiki uh, WikiLeaks. I can't avoid this one. If you remember, Dana, uh, I am old enough to remember, and you're not. But um, the the deal that was struck between Henry Kissinger, Richard Nixon, and the Chinese regime. If you actually look at the diplomatic background to that back in 69, 1970, and 71, the number of back channels that dear Henry had to go through, through the Romanians, through Pakistan, the level of secrecy that was required to get to that deal, which in a sense turned out to be a very positive deal, I would say, for international order, for the Asian region, and ultimately for China, and certainly for the United States. That required the utmost level of secrecy, and I think that was the point that you were trying to get at, Dana. I mean, it's not an argument for secrecy per se. It is that if one was ever to conceive of a, con of a deal it would have to be done under circumstances where you didn't have, you know, wiki looking over your shoulder, or that because it would require the, a level of delicacy and secrecy. Because in the end, it was that level of diplomatic secrecy. Let's be blunt about it, which made feasible the arms control agreement, the first salt agreements of seventy one, seventy two, and then this extraordinary moment when Richard Milhouse Nixon gets off Air Force One. Guess where? Beijing. And you know, so there, there are some sober reflections on this, and 
in a sense, I'm kind of torn on that issue, like I suppose most people would be. On the one hand, it's great to get all this information, particularly about Batman and Robin. Um, uh, but on the other hand, if one's serious about the kinds of negotiations that will have to be involved, it will have to be done under circumstances which will be relatively secret, to say the least, to say the least. Anyway, I'd like to thank um, our speaker this evening, and also to thank his co-author again, who can't be here, uh, Stephen Simon. I think the analysis this evening was balanced uh, and sober. And I'd like you also to go outside, buy the book. It's a, like a small book, therefore it doesn't cost you too much. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what it translates to, about £14.73 or something like that. I can't, I can't translate $21.95 because the exchange rates are moving so Actually, fast. I just bought one. What? I just bought that one for oh, you. Oh, right. And I believe it was $14.95. A snip. An absolute snip. So please go outside and buy it. And finally, could we thank our speaker this evening? Thank you very much. Indeed.